0: Please stand with me as we read God's Word today. We're going to be considering the rich young ruler today. And as we mentioned last week, to recall to mind, the context in each of the synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all have the same context that the little children was framed around. Okay? Okay? And the rich young ruler always comes after the little children and not hindering them. Okay? And that's for a very important purpose today, because as I hope we see, this rich young ruler is a foil, as a highlighting the opposite of a childlike faith. I'm going to read verses 13 through 26, but we're going to be considering 16 through 26 today by God's help and grace. Verse 13, this is God's holy inspired Word given for us for our learning and for our salvation and sanctification today. Then children were brought to Him that He might lay His hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to Me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And He laid His hands on them and went away. And behold... Behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you, notice this, would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Or how do I come short? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Here's the good news. Okay? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Please pray with me. Lord, this text is so rife with confusion. Difficult to explain. And Lord, I'm, I'm not convinced the way that I'm going to try to explain it is the best way. But God, by Your grace, I ask You that You would help us today to see the the truth that Christ is trying to explain here, that You would open our hearts if we are convinced of anything that's contrary to the Gospel in this passage, and that You would show us Your great mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, even to show us our non-sufficiency to attain life by works. God, fill me with Your Spirit and help me, God, to, to do only what You can do. In Your name I pray. Humble us, humble me, in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Just to be very plain with you today, brothers and sisters, this text that is before us highlights the need for us to have a a very rich and good biblical hermeneutic. That is, a way to interpret the Scripture. Okay, Because it is especially prominent and prevalent the difficulty of interpretation when you read through the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now that might be something that's shocking to hear for us. But, I want to talk about this, that God intended in His eternal plan to give us revelation. And that He would give us the Gospels, but He would give us the Apostles to explain the Gospels to us. Okay? The Incarnation came to us. Jesus spoke many words to this generation, but He intended for greater clarity to come through the apostolic ministry, especially through the epistles of the Old and New Testament. The epistles of the New Testament. You know what I mean, I hope. Um, But, I bring that up today because this text is absolutely rife with confusion among those who would consider them evangelical commentators of the Gospel. Uh, I have a commentary that is considered to be the best modern commentary on Matthew where this man, I am telling you, did not offer one word of grace here, but told us, That it is the duty of every Christian to sell everything that he has and give to the poor. That affluence, this is his words, not directly quoted, but very close. Affluence is directly contrary to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that does nothing but damn the soul in an unnecessary way. It makes the righteous sad. And it makes the wicked glad. Okay, This text... Christ uses the law He does here in a very shocking way that I hope we see. But what I want us to see here is that He uses the law in such a way as to to break our legs to show us that we can't go the path of works to get to life. He shows this man, you think you're sufficient, I'll prove to you, you're not sufficient. Okay? I just preached the whole sermon to you, okay? So we're going to try to open that up a little bit today. It is opposite of Jesus Christ's intention in this text to condemn believing Christians. The central idea here is that Jesus exposes the sinfulness of a self-righteous man and teaches the disciples to trust God's grace and God's grace alone. And so the purpose for this text is going to shape our are outlined today to preach the purpose of this text. My goal, my pastoral goal for you today is that you would abandon all of your self-sufficiency, both materially and spiritually, and encourage you to rest in Jesus Christ. Okay? So, I encourage you. I, the Bible encourages you today to abandon, to flee from your self-sufficiency before God. To run from it, as Paul Washer once said, like a, like a dragon is coming after you. Okay, this, What I want us to see is self-sufficiency is the root of this text. And I want to prove to you first that this rich young ruler is self-sufficient. That he is self-sufficient. And consider this. I want us to put ourselves in this scene and perhaps the Jewish mindset here. When we consider this man in how He's presented to us. If we could do that apart from the Gospel for a second, which is a dangerous exercise. But if we could, He is naturally impressive. He's impressive to the eyes of fallen sinful man. First, in His natural state. That is, not considering His religious nature, but looking at how the Bible describes Him, He is an impressive person. Okay, And I would say even here, that this rich young ruler almost is a picture of the Jewish ideal of strength, of morality, of blessing. But that picture is put before us of this Jewish ideal, this sinful Jewish ideal, in order to highlight all the more to us the inability of man to get to God on his own works, from his own sufficiency. Okay, So how is this man impressive? Well, first, he's rich, right? These are... Obvious things. This man is rich. And we get that from our text. This man comes up to him and notice that in verses 21 and 22, that Jesus says, sell all you have and follow me. And it says in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Another gospel says he was extremely rich. Okay. He was rich. Now, especially to the Jewish mind, this is impressive to all of us if we're going to be honest, but especially to the Jewish mind, riches often would convey a sense of God's blessing to these people. They were tempted always to see the poor, the destitute, the sick, the blind, as having somewhat of a curse of God and the rich as having God's blessing put upon them. He was an impressive man because he was rich. Second, he was young. Right? we have a culture that worships youth, don't we? Everybody tries to dress like they're 20 years old all the time, you know? And that's either people younger than 20 or people older than 20, right? We, we love youth and vitality because we love health and strength, right? This man's young. He's, he's rich, but he's also young. But more than that, he's impressive externally because he's a ruler. Now, we get this from the Gospel of Luke that says in the Greek he is an archon a ruler, and him being Jewish himself, it might mean that he's a ruler of a synagogue, or a co-ruler of a synagogue, or maybe even part of the Sanhedrin. This is the, the council that would make judicial decisions in Jerusalem. Okay, He is wealthy, youthful, energetic, and has great responsibility laid upon his shoulders. He is respected by other men, not just because of his wealth and riches, but Because he can handle it. But he's not just impressive externally. According to his religious life, looking externally at him religiously, I hope you know what I mean. He is impressive. We see here the morality that he has is impressive. When Christ brings to him the second table of the Ten Commandments, this man responds, I've kept all these. Now, we know... From a Christian perspective, that he did not keep these things in his heart, but he's probably looking at it the same way the Apostle Paul did before he was saved. Right? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, according to his previous view, that according to the righteousness that was under the law, he's blameless. He's blameless. Nobody could point at this man and say, that man is a great sinner. Okay. He externally was very righteous and impressive doctrinally he was probably impressive, right? This takes a little thought. Do you know the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the more conservative party. The Sadducees, the more liberal. They denied angels, the existence of the Spirit, and thus eternal life spiritually. But this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? He, he had the, the conservative doctrine of his day, and more than that, he was fervent. He did not just have a cold, dead orthodoxy in his heart that he believed what the Pharisees taught. He was fervent in Mark chapter 10. I just want us to peek at this, okay? To see his fervency. You know, Christ is returning. They're going to Jerusalem to give his life for sinners. And so he just gets done blessing these little children that come to him. And he's packing up to move on. And this rich young ruler realizes this. And he doesn't say, well, I'll just let him go. Notice, in verse 17, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He was fervent to some degree in his spirituality. Okay? He ran to Christ. This is not a culture in which running is something that is a, uh, seen as something that is dignified, okay? It's an undignified thing, but he wants to see Christ so badly he runs to this man. He kneels before this poor itinerant teacher and he calls him a good teacher. He's impressive to the natural eyes of man. In all observable ways, I would say that this man is impressive if we look at him without gospel eyes. But when we look at him with gospel eyes, we should come up with the opposite conclusion This man spiritually is self-sufficient, deceived, and lost in his sin. Self-sufficient. Deceived and lost. Now, to show that to you, I want us to see the whole of his life is self-sufficient. The whole of his life is self-sufficient. And that he lives the entirety of his existence trusting in the things that he has and not at all trusting in God providing for him. And we see this first with his physical life, right? His, his wealth that he has. He's unwilling to abandon it to follow after Jesus Christ. And we can very easily deduce from that, can't we? He doesn't trust that God's going to provide for him. If I give up all of my wealth... I might be left and I might die. He trusts in himself. And he becomes the man of Psalm 52.7 that says, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. He was self-sufficient in his physical life. But, second, he was self-sufficient in his spiritual life. This is the overwhelming emphasis of the text, by the way. This question that he asks should make us, and I hope it does, make us all sit on the edge of our seat and know our diagnostics go up. There's something wrong with this man. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He is spiritually self sufficient. He believes that he can go in the way of the covenant of works, he can go in the way of works righteousness to inherit eternal life. Now, I don't want us to get, we might say, well, he says inherit. Right? So he must believe it's given to him rather than he earns it. This word can be used as a wider range. It can mean just merely a transaction of things. And this man had a transactional theology. I give to God, he gives to me. I put God in my debt and then he owes me and then I'll get eternal life in some way. Okay? But this is absolutely condemned in Scripture and I hope you know we can go to so many places. Works, righteousness, Galatians 3.10 I'm going to quickly quote it. Notice this, for all who rely on works of the law, all who rest on works, okay, are under a curse, for it is written, notice, listen to this, cursed be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law, and do them. This man is self-sufficient in every area ...of his life. It extends to and it permeates his entire being... ...just like it does all of us naturally. Self-sufficiency. The danger of this man and the warning of Christ about riches... ...is if we can say in a side note... ...because these two things often go together. Not necessarily, but often. Um, Brother Joey read from Deuteronomy chapter 8 this morning... ...that God was going to give great blessing. right? So affluence is not contrary to the gospel. God gives blessing... But the danger he warns them of is don't let your heart lead you astray in these things. And you say, who is the Lord? And this is exactly what Proverbs chapter 30, the prayer that we have written there says. Proverbs chapter 30, the, the prayer of Agar. Notice what he says. Verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Christ's warning that he gives later is because riches has a peculiar tendency to breed self-sufficiency, not just in the physical life, but in the spiritual. They, They go together a lot of the time. But what I want us to see here is this man is entirely self-sufficient in his heart before God. And self-sufficiency is contrary to a proper response to the Gospel. Okay, That's what, it, that's what I want us to see here today. This man is self-sufficient and this self-sufficiency is, is contrary to receiving the grace of God. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the word Foil. I think I might have used it in the introduction. In literature, a foil is a character whose characteristics... ...they highlight the characteristics in another person, okay? So, for example, in Macbeth, just because we read that earlier this year... ...Macbeth, we have Banquo, who is kind of the good guy in the story. He's selfless to some degree... And he highlights the ruthlessness and barbarity of Macbeth, right? The character, that highlight and that tension serves to show that. This man is a foil. This man is a foil. Here, he highlights childlike faith. okay? And childlike faith highlights his own self-sufficiency. His own self-sufficiency. And as we think about that, A children's reception of the gospel. Why does Christ take a child in Matthew chapter 18, put them in the midst and say, you must become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because a little child has nothing, can offer nothing, is on the lowest rung of society. Nobody would have a little child go in the way of works to earn anything because they can't do it. He would have us to become like that, to know I can do nothing before God to earn my salvation, but I must receive it as a child receives it. But this man won't receive it. He refuses to receive it. Rather, he wants to earn it. What what can I do to inherit eternal life? He will not be low like a child. He wants to be exalted by his works. He wants to attain the glory that only Jesus Christ attained by His own works. Jesus hears this man. Ask this question. And, and know that Jesus Christ knows the Gospel better than us. He hears this and in love, knowing this man's self-sufficiency goes to correct him. Okay? Now, where we need to pay extra close attention is how Jesus Christ corrects Him. Jesus Christ sets Him on the path of the covenant of works, or works righteousness, if you're more comfortable with that terminology, and shows Him the self-sufficient way to eternal life. And merely says to Him, if you want to go this direction, let's go this direction, and I'll show you where it ends. Okay? Jesus points to the law of eternal life. Right? Right? And this is shocking in the text, isn't it? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Right? Keep the commandments. And this shocks us, right? Because we, we're, we're Christians. We're used to hearing the gospel of free grace and in all of our hearts. And this seems contrary to that. And perhaps we, we read this and are worried. Like, maybe, maybe there is. Maybe I should be seeking works as a way to life. But that is not Christ's point. The great physician deals with different patients that come to Him in different manners and ways. To the poor and the humble, those that are sinners, know their need of forgiveness, know they have no ability, He offers freely the Gospel. Come to Me and drink. Nothing you have to do to come to Me. Just come and believe and rest in Me. But to the proud, but to the proud, He shows them that their pride will avail nothing to them, the proud, self-righteous, and self-sufficient, Jesus points to the law. And I want us to give us even a more striking example of this in Luke chapter 10. Okay? And you might say, how can it be more striking? I think that Luke chapter 10, Jesus so clearly points this man to the works of the law to obtain eternal life. Okay? And notice this extremely similar context because this is the way Jewish people thought how they could come to God at the time. Okay, at the time. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, notice, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice what Christ says. He said to him, what is written in the law? This, and this is the law that he reads is the most condemning law that i can think of okay he answered you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself and he that's jesus said to him you have answered correctly notice do this and you will live this is pure unadulterated law do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Now, the question that we should have in our mind is why does Jesus do this? Okay? And partially is because this path to eternal life is a legitimate way to get eternal life. Not to sinners. Okay? But there are two paths of life discussed in the Scripture. Okay? And I, I hope to show that to you. And first, I want us to say what we discussed this morning in Sunday School, in chapter 6 of our confession, that Adam was made under a covenant of works. That is, Adam was created. And he was told, do this and you will live. A conditional covenant that if he kept perfect and perpetually, he would have entered life, eternal life, with God. And all of His posterity, that includes you and me, are born under that covenant. On our hearts, naturally from birth, it is written, do this and you will live. I want us to go to a few passages to prove this because I think this is so clear in Scripture. And it is. Um, Leviticus 18, and I hope that you see why I quote this. This is the primary text the New Testament authors use in regard to this. Leviticus 18, notice the striking that God uses about the law. In this chapter, he's warning Israel not to do what the nations around them did. Okay? And that's disobeying the law. The law that they never had put in front of them in Scripture, but the law that they knew was on their heart. And notice what it says in verse 4. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Okay. Now, reading that text alone might be a little confusing. So we're going to go to Galatians 3 and Romans 10 that uses that text. But I want to tell you here, preemptively, that this text is saying that my law is such that if you did it perfectly and perpetually, you would live forever, eternally, with me. Okay? Now, there is a promise attached to the law because we're born under Adam and in that covenant that we can have life. And the apostles agree with this. Especially, Paul, turn with me to to Romans. This is where my my pulse gets a little high because I, I think that this is so important for us to see. Fear my inability to say it. But I want us to see... That the law promises life, the law promises life, and that's why Jesus tells this man, "Keep the commandments, and you'll enter life." Notice Romans seven ten. Paul almost says, at a glance, the very commandment that what promised life, the very commandment that promised life, proved to be death to me. Right. That is that Paul was a sinner. The commandment promises life. I read, Paul says, in Leviticus 18 and verse 4 and 5, that through the law, life can be given, but I tried to do it and death came instead of life. And we would ask, well, well why can't we go down that path? It's because we have sin, sin and sinful weakness in our hearts. This is why in Romans chapter 8, if you want to turn there, Paul says... For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice that the fault of us not reaching eternal life is not because the law was insufficient. It's because that we are insufficient. Right? And the illustration I've often used, and forgive me if it's become boring to you, but I, I'm not creative enough to think of another one. I can hold up a 27 ounce framing hammer, and I can say about that instrument that this instrument is perfectly capable of building a house. Okay, It's perfectly capable of building a house and driving 16 penny nails and doing things perfectly to that end. But where's the weakness lie? in the person that holds the, the instrument. Right, The law is given to man. Republished, I would say, on Mount Sinai. Okay, given to us to show us that the problem is that we are sinful and we cannot reach eternal life through that way that was originally given to Adam. But in our hearts, we naturally always want to go to that way. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I give up? How much time should I weep and pray? How many chapters should I read a day that I might inherit eternal life? And Jesus puts this man on this path to show him This is the wrong way to think. The law can give life, but sinners are unable to keep it. it, And therefore, we ought to cry out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Because we praise God there is another path to life. We're created in the garden. One path to life. But in that same garden after the fall, God slayed a lamb in that garden and covered the sins of Adam and Eve and promised that there is another path to life, a righteousness that is outside of the law. We still must have perfect righteousness to be in God's presence, but it comes to us by gift, not by works. And please turn with me to two passages that are longish, And these passages have Leviticus 18, chapters 4 and 5 in them, if you're skeptical, which I understand. Galatians chapter 3. Again, these texts must be used to interpret the hard text that we're in in Matthew, not the other way around. Notice Paul's clear words, Galatians 3 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, "Cursed it. Be everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. That is again, live eternally. Have eternal life by faith. But the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the one who does the commandments, shall live by them. Again, eternal life is being talked about here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Romans chapter ten. I love this chapter. So much. So much. Please, please notice with me. Again, the two paths of life are clearly taught by Paul here, one by works and one by faith in Christ. Notice all the, the most wonderful words that a sinner could read. Notice verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This path Is no longer the way to righteousness because of Jesus Christ. He's the end of the law for righteousness. We no longer seek to do good works to inherit eternal life any longer because Christ is the end of that. Notice verses 5 through 13. I know it's long. Notice, he's going to show these two paths, okay? For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on what? The law, okay? This is the path to life. Based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them, that's Leviticus 18. But the righteousness based on faith, notice this, the second path to life, says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? What shall I do to be saved? That is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So notice what he's saying. The righteousness based on faith doesn't say, what do I do to come bring this blessing down or to bring it up? Rather, what does it say in verse 8? The Word is near you. That is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, this is great promise, isn't it? Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. No distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call to Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus drives this man down the path of the law so that He can expose him. So that He can expose him. Jesus Christ exposes this man's insufficiency. And I don't even like that word because I don't think it's strong enough. Sometimes when I think of insufficient, I could say, I'm insufficient to do this and so I just need a little bit of help. Right? Just need a little boost in the right direction. Jesus Christ exposes this man's and ours are non-sufficiency. I think that's better. Christ does this for this man's good. I want us to see that. Christ is not calloused in some way. Sees this man come up to him and say, oh, this man has terrible theology. I'm just going to dismiss him with a difficult saying. No, no, no. He is not callous towards this man. Rather, Jesus desires with his heart for this man to repent and come in faith to him. And this is really strongly implied in Mark chapter 10.21. This is a parallel where in between this man saying, I've kept all these laws and Christ giving this other special commandment. Jesus, it says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus isn't calloused here. He's trying to do this man good to show him his non-sufficiency. He's unable, okay? Jesus desires for this man to cast off all of his self-sufficiency to realize it's not going to get him anywhere in this life and it's worthless and to become like a little child blinded by his own external performance. We read the sad reality, don't we, in Matthew chapter 19 again. The man just goes away. Sorrowful. Because he had great possessions. Sorrowful. And Christ, before he goes away sorrowful, and after he says this, Christ gives a special command to him to expose. Okay? Gives a special command to him. He is not convinced that the second table of the law convicts him of sin where he has non-sufficiency, and so Jesus gives him a special law to expose to him something. Now, if this seems weird to us, that Christ is, in a holy way, I, I hope I can say this in a way, and if I'm wrong, just please correct me, deceiving this man a little bit, okay? And what I mean is he's, he's showing him as if this is a path he can go down, okay? In order to correct his heart, Okay? Jesus does this on another occasion to expose the sin of another person. You might recall in John chapter 4, this, this woman, right? The Samaritan woman that meets Jesus at the well and she's talking to him. And what does he say to her? To expose the sin in her heart. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband. Come here. What does she say? Well, I, don't, I don't have a husband. He says, you've spoken right. right? You've had, I forget the number. You've had five. Years. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. Right? Jesus does this in His goodness, exposing the sin of our heart. And perhaps today, He's, he's led you down that path of self-righteousness that, that you would say, I, I must do this, and you're noticing you can't do it. That is by God's sovereign intention and plan that you would abandon it. Get off that path and go to the path of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. He exposes her sinful life, this woman in John 4, in order that she would repent and believe, and the same is true here. He reveals here that this man does not love his neighbor as himself as he claims to. He loves his possessions far more. And he does not love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, because his God is his money. That's clear in our text, isn't it? The Messiah of the world who's been prophesied since Genesis 3.15 has come, is standing in front of you and says, follow me. But He had great possessions. And He would not. He would not. He worshipped those things more than the Savior. And Christ exposes. He means to expose these things in this man's heart. He exposes that he will not refuse to rest and believe in Jesus Christ alone. He refused to trust in the Lord with His material wealth. He refused to trust in the Lord with His own soul's salvation. He had to take the reins. And Christ proves that He is non-sufficient for this path to righteousness. And so are all of you. You're not sufficient to go down this path. And at any point, this man could have appealed to mercy. At any point when Christ said, what are the commandments? And He said, the second table of law. At that point, He should have said, oh, but I know in my heart and my soul that I have not done good to my neighbor. I know I've broken the tenth commandment that I've coveted after my neighbor. I've wanted what was theirs. I know that I've had impure thoughts in my mind. Please forgive me. He could have done that. He could have at this point said, oh Christ, I desire to abandon everything and follow you, but I don't find the strength in my heart and I'm afraid to do so. Forgive me, a sinner. And he would have been forgiven freely and completely. But he did not do it. He was unwilling to forsake this path of righteousness to go on the path of righteousness by faith. He's unwilling to part with his wealth, unwilling to part with his self-righteousness and beg for mercy and faith. And this is meant to warn us to see your non-sufficiency and go to Jesus Christ. This is obedience. This is the mark of Christianity. Not that you keep the law perfectly or to any standard that I can make up, but that you repent and believe as a constant habit of your life. This is the mark of true faith in Jesus Christ. That you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ if you repent and believe. That's how we know that we have His righteousness. Because we have faith in Him. We're to abandon our self-righteousness and trust in Christ alone because He is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. So, not only must we do that, we must trust Christ's full sufficiency. And maybe sloppily, but this is what... I want us to see in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23-26. through 26. This man goes away, and like we've seen the pattern over and over, Christ goes to His disciples privately. Doesn't He? And He explains more fully to them the things that aren't clear to the unbelieving crowds. And we read, that Jesus said to His disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved according to this path? But Jesus looked to them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So what I want us to see here is that salvation is only possible with God. With God's full and free grace, that is. Not just with God helping us along the path in some way. Every Roman Catholics believe that. That is not what we believe. And Jesus Christ repeats this impossibility to his disciples. And he gives an illustration to to show this impossibility to them. And we may have heard, I just want to address this quickly, that a camel going through the eye of a needle, that there was a gate in Jerusalem that was a little bit smaller, and that a camel could get on his knees and go through it, but he'd have to get rid of his whole pack to do it, Right? This has really no basis in history, okay? Jesus is saying, he's giving a grotesque illustration of a camel going through the eye of a very small needle, okay? To show that it's absolutely impossible. It is so impossible, it is just as much impossible for a sinner to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to do that, and more so, okay? It is meant to explain and show and illustrate that man is totally unable to come to God through his own works okay and I believe that we can read the the rich here in a in a dual faceted way because this man is not poor in spirit nor is he poor in his wealth okay this man is rich in both of these things and while it is difficult for a physically rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven only because with wealth comes an entire range of other temptations that don't enter into everybody's life okay it does make it more difficult for a physically rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it is physically impossible, spiritually impossible, for a spiritually rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have here the only hope that we have presented by Christ. Our only hope is that God would save sinners, that He would do it, and Him alone would do it, because we can't contribute to it at all. But the good news is not that God would save sinners, but that God does. Save sinners. And he saves sinners by Jesus Christ himself. And to tie this together, brothers and sisters, I, I want you to see the beauty of it because I think it's beautiful. Jesus Christ went down that path of the covenant of works. He went down it, but he went down it perfectly in our place and in our stead. He obeyed the law of God perfectly and perpetually all the days of his life. And as the second Adam, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam has succeeded and he's entered into glory. But he took all of us with him. And I hope that you see the beauty in this. If, if it's not it maybe a little allegorical, I think it fits wonderfully. This rich young man refused to give up his riches materially and spiritually and give to the poor. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, He did those things, didn't He? He gave up His riches. If we can speak crassly, material riches, I know that's not exactly true, but He gave up the glory in heaven that He had. Perfect felicity with the Father that He enjoyed from eternity past. We see this in Philippians 2, don't we? That Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to with His might. This rich young man held on to his wealth and wouldn't let it go. Christ let it go to become poor for our sake. But He also gave up His spiritual riches. Christ was a truly righteous man. He kept the entire second table of the law and the first But he gave up his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the thing that struck my heart the most in contemplating and meditating on this text. He not only gave up his riches physically and spiritually, he gave them to the church of Jesus Christ. He gave to the poor. As we come to Him having nothing, no righteousness of my own, no enduring eternal riches, Jesus Christ came to give up all of His and give to the poor. And we have it forever. We have His righteousness by faith. And we're going to enter glory and partake of that glory with Him for all eternity. Affluence is not contrary to the Gospel because we're going to be affluent in heaven. Now our hope isn't there, but you know what I'm saying? Christ gave it to us. But we'll be without sin, without temptation, able to enjoy it to its full and not make a God out of it there. And God gave sinners all of this through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the call here today. That you would trust Him and what He has done and not go down that path. And the morrow of modern divinity makes this wonderful illustration of those lepers standing outside the gate And they said, well, if we go into the city during this famine, we're going to die. But if we go to the Syrians, or I'm sorry, if we stay here, we're going to die. But if we go into the city, we'll die. We'll go to the Syrians because if we die, we die. But there we at least have a chance of making it. You have a better chance. You have a promise by God. Don't go back to the covenant of works and don't stay where you are, but go to Jesus Christ. And you will have absolute free and full salvation in Him. Promised that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Cast all your hope on Him, all your hope on Him, none on yourself. Trust in nothing but Christ. You have life and righteousness because He earned it. And you are in Him. You're in Him. God sees you in Him. You're made a part of Him mystically. And the way that we know that we're in Him again is by the infallible mark of saving faith. If you have faith in Him today, you're in Jesus Christ. You have righteousness. And don't go back to that other way. It will destroy your soul. As we turn to the table today, again, we see these wonderful symbols put before our eye that represent giving life, don't they? Bread sustaining our life. The Gospel sustains sinners' lives. He sustains us by His body and blood. We look to this bread and we know that it was broken from me. We look to this juice, we know it was His blood was spilled from me. As we partake of it, it should give us great assurance that He has gone down the path of works righteousness in order that we can go down another path of righteousness by faith.